an important reminder, O oh God, that you don't just notice the sparrow, but you notice us. And you do more than notice. You enter our world. You take on our life. You die for our sins. And the last thing you say in Matthew is that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. So there's not a place that we can be or a thing we've gone through that your son, our Savior, hasn't already been through before us. Thank you for joining us after the chaos of Harvey. And thank you for being with us so we can look back one year later. And thank you for giving us hope and purpose even today. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. This is the second in a series of messages that we're offering on being all in. And last week I ended with the observation or the statement that we are defined not by our abilities, but by our choices. You are the person you're becoming by the choices you make, good, bad, and ugly. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, it talks about a key choice that we um, make or don't make in our life, but that makes or breaks us. And it is to draw toward community or to run from it. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24 and 25, these short words, after the writer, who's maybe Phoebe, we don't know, has just finished talking about that we have friendship with God because Christ has gone into the veil on our behalf. Then these words follow. It seems surprising, but they're connected. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God always blesses the hearing and the reading of God's Word. I'm convinced that there is a privilege, that there is a joy, that there is a blessing that thousands of Christians are missing out of, especially in Western Christianity. Maybe you're one of the people who's missing out on this blessing. Let me get at it this way. There's a professor named Larry Rasmussen, Professor Emeritus at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and he says, the problem of our age can be explained this way. We have substituted consumption and hedonism for community. In other words, he said, we think that eating and drinking and fooling around and buying will make us happy. Will fill the hole that we have in our lives will ultimately satisfy us, and Rasmussen is not buying it. Neither am I. Are you buying it? Remember being in college and reading Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. He's the guy in the 1830s, a Frenchman who came into our country and was so enamored by the experiment of democracy, he said it's brilliant and should be transported throughout the entire world. He said the only thing that can derail it is our tendency in America toward rugged individualism. He said we've substituted deep 
togetherness for frenetic activity. That's not you, is it? Frenetically active and unconnected. Will Mancini, 21st century author, wrote a book called Church Unique, says that four individuals, mom, dad, and two kids, can be in four different rooms or even in the same room watching four different programs on four different devices and call it family time. But that's not community, really, is it? It's closeness geographically but not necessarily closeness relationally, right? Wendell Berry, the poet, said that what we don't have is rich connections. What we do have is industry. Americans are great at industry. You're great at industry. I'm great at industry. In his poem, he says, we've got the power industry. We've got the defense industry. We've got the communications industry. We've got the transportation industry. We've got the food industry. We've got the sports industry. We've got the beauty industry. We've got the entertainment industry. And when everything is reduced to industry, the danger is we end up loving things and using people instead of the other way around. If you're in college and had Psych 101 back in the day or even today, they'll lift up a case study of an Eastern Bloc country during the Cold War where the orphanages took care of the physical needs of the residents, the kids there, but didn't have time or the inclination to reach out to their relational needs. So they were physically fed, they, they got enough water and things to drink, they had a, a bed to sleep in, but they languished and some of them died without bonding, without hugging, without being sung to, without love. And so Descartes said that cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, that's nonsense, really. It's good to think. I'm not against thinking. It's not even I do, therefore I am. I think it's amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. Friendship, fellowship, community, relationships. They asked Jesus, what's the key thing from everything that has gone before you? What, what message do you want us to know? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Amo ergo sum. I love, therefore I am. In 1 John chapter 4, the writer says, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. If you're not abiding in God, if you're not abiding in love, you're not really living We were made for relationships. We were made for community. And our text for today says there's three things to think about as we're developing a habit of togetherness that can guide us toward rich community. First thing is, first habit is, do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some. In fact, the writer's saying some people have a negative habit. They have isolation as their habit. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some. Take on a habit where you're seeking, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, community. 
well, why is that such a big deal? Well, have you ever thought that God, before we existed, was in community, is in community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in a loving relationship with God's self, and we're created in the image of God, so if God is in community, in and of God's self, that we're to be in community if we're created in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 says. Genesis 2 says it was not good for the man to be alone. Adam needs Eve, Eve needs Adam, and not in some sort of crazy uh, dominating relationship. The helper word in Hebrew there is the same one, the exact same one from Psalm 46.1 that says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. If God is our helper and Eve is our helper, then it's not a subordinate helper. It's she completes me. He completes her. God completes us. We were meant for togetherness. So that Martin Luther during the Reformation could say something as radical as outside the church there is no salvation. And of course, we can follow Jesus or make a commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord on a mountaintop or by ourselves. He's just saying, we can't carry that out alone. John Calvin said, you can't have God as Father without having the church as mother. The problem, though, is everybody knows the church is completely messed up around the world. I'm not saying MDPC in particular, although we have human people in it and human pastors, so it's messed up to some degree. And when you have that scenario, there's going to be some time when I'm going to offend you from the pulpit. And if you're on a committee, someone on the committee with you is going to say or do something so stupid, you're going to say, I don't know if I can associate with that committee anymore or this church. Someone might even take your seat in worship. How dare they? And you're tempted to leave over that. There's a story of a man in the upper Midwest who did that. I don't know what of the three or four scenarios caused him to leave, but he was at his home, and a month later, the pastor found out that that was the case, and so he decided to call on him one evening. It was a cold evening. The man was in front of his fireplace, and the pastor knocked on the door. The man invited him in. The pastor didn't know what to say. The man didn't know what to say. But they're staring at this fire, two guys, parallel playing, and they can't let this go on forever. So the pastor gets up, takes the tongs, and grabs one of the logs, the embers that's, that's bright and alive and crackling and, and orange, and he pulls it out and sets it by the side of the hearth, and he said, this is you. In about 30, 45 seconds, the ember, which was alive, is now dead, and it's just black just gray. It's just white. It's lifeless. He goes up and he grabs the same thing and he puts it back in the middle and it's not 10 seconds before it's alive again. And he gets up and he leaves, thinking he'd said all he needed to say in this, to this guy. And next Sunday, the guy was back at church. And the next month at the committee meeting, he was back at the committee meeting. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some. Why would you neglect the meeting together? Well, it's either because of fear or conceit. Fear is we've been burnt before, and we don't want to be burnt again. We've been hurt before. We don't want to be hurt again. 
So C.S. Lewis had to, to write the brilliant words that he writes, which love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Yeah, we've all been burnt before, and the fear is being burnt again, but the alternative to love and community is to be unbreakable. Nobody wants to become that. Do they? The conceit would be, I'm ruggedly individual. I can do this all by myself. And we can to a certain degree, but it's not life and it in abundance. Paul described the community of believers together as a body. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. I mean, you can live without an eye, but you really need an eye. You need a hand too. The foot can't say to the head, I don't need you. And in fact, those parts of the body that we consider less are actually, Paul says, indispensable. So with, with someone this week, a gentleman who um, had a kidney stone this summer, all summer, tried to pass it normal ways and they, and they had to blast it and then draw it out. He said... They thought it had passed, and then he was having elevated PSA readings. So they checked into his prostate. They almost took out his prostate. The doctor said, it could be your kidney stone. It, you could still have a kidney stone somewhere in your bladder, and it's causing problems um, down uh, to your prostate. And they checked, and he had a big, humongous stone in his bladder that was pressing on his prostate. They almost took out his prostate, but when they removed the kidney stone, his PSA level returned to normal. Trying to tell me our, our kidneys don't matter? I tweaked my hip around Easter and my gait had changed and then my right hip wasn't the issue, it was my left ankle. I mean, what the heck is going on? It's all related. We're all interconnected. If a part of the body is missing, we suffer. If you're missing from the part of the body, the body is suffering. And so if worship matters to you, if Sunday school matters to you, if a small group matters to you, then commit to it. Make it a habit. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some. Because if you wait for Sunday morning at 8 a.m. to decide whether you're coming or not, let me tell you, the bed feels very good at 8 a.m. in the morning. But like those people that exercise and they put out their gear and their, their shoes and they call someone the night before and say, I'll meet you here at, at 7 a.m. And, and you go to those things. Maybe the same kind of thing, same kind of commitment needs to happen for worship and Sunday school and your small group. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some. Put in a habit that is constructive for community for you. There's a second habit that the writer lifts up, and it says, consider how to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. That word in Greek for provoke 
is stir up and irritate. You're given permission to stir up and irritate other people, not to tear them down toward love and good deeds. But what they're simply saying there is that you're required challenge to speak the truth and love in the body of Christ. You're to allow people to, to be accountable to you, to you to be accountable to other people. It, do you have any relationships in your life where you've invited, given permission for someone to speak into your life in those terms? Early in my ministry in Ames, Iowa, where Iowa State University is, I would meet every Tuesday morning with a group of guys at 7 a.m. for breakfast, and we'd study a book, we'd ask what we can pray for each other about, and it was a great group until one of the spouses of one of the guys in the group found out that one of the guys, and a very accomplished person in his business with a very influential, high-responsibility job, was doing that job in a way that all the people below him hated him. And everybody in the job knew he was a Christian. In fact, when he'd leave the room, they'd close a door, and on the back of the door, they had a bullseye with his picture on it, and they'd throw darts at him. And our group found out that that was what was happening with this guy. And two or three of us talked to each other and say, do you want to talk to him? Do you want to talk to him? I said, I'll pray for you. You be the guy that talks to him. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, we decided that was something that we needed to share together. We did it as gently, as, as compassionately, as lovingly as we could, lifting up this person's gifts and the high responsibilities that they were under, and he was incredibly defensive. Didn't come back to the group the next week. Was gone the week after that. I called him, we emailed. The week after that, he came back, and he said, I'm sorry. And I didn't think what you said was right until I opened that door and looked on the other side and there I was. And I don't want people to have a certain view of Christ because of my poor behavior. And as I was leaving that church to head uh, to Springfield, Missouri, he was working hard on that. I think people were holding judgment to see if it was going to hold and I think it has because of his love for Jesus. And if we hadn't brought that up, think of the negative witness that would have continued to go on in his life. In the Springfield Church, I was part of a group called a Lazarus group, pastors who were more seasoned than I was, a few that were about my age, and we'd get together once a month. The, the premise of the group was Lazarus was Jesus' best friend. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's a good reminder for pastors to realize that they don't raise people from the dead. They're not Jesus. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, then he said to the crowd, unbind him. And so we were to be a group that would, through our meeting together, unbind each other. You ever thought that that's part of your role in the body of Christ when you're in a small group? To help someone, the bandage be unbound from their eyes so that they can see better. The, the bandages unbind their wounds so that they can get air and that they can heal. So you, the, the, the bandages unbind their minds so that they can see in a more Christ-like way. I probably learned more about ministry and being a pastor by those older pastors in the Lazarus group in my second call than any other place. 
I owe my ministry to them, the healthy part of it at least. Jesus didn't just pick one person, pour everything into her or him, and say, look at that person, universe, and you'll know what it means to be a Christian. He calls 12, but he's with 70, and he has three, and when he sends them out, he never sends them out as one. He sends them out two by two. so that we can consider how to provoke one another onto love and good deeds. If you don't have anyone in your life that can get in your face and challenge you, you're probably not growing. And according to this, you're not all in. But W. Sangster, who was a British pastor about a generation ago, said this, God has as many avenues to a person's heart and mind as the person has friends who are friends of God. We must nurture relationships in the body of Christ because someone needs to speak into my life. I maybe need to speak in somebody else's life so that our lives become more congruent to Christ and more effective for the kingdom. Connect or die. And there's the final habit, final idea. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some, but consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds and encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the fun one, that we get to encourage each other. About 18 months ago, Uh, Mike Handel and I, Mike was the chair of the committee that called Sherry and I here to Memorial Drive, ate uh, lunch, and we were talking about where we'd come from the time that we'd arrived and where we still had to go, and we talked about getting through discernment, we talked about doing uh, strategic planning, goal setting, and that we still needed to bring in key staff in key areas, but he looked at me at the end of the conversation and he said to me, Alf, what do you and Sherry need? It's a great, thoughtful question of Mike, I'm sure on behalf of the entire committee and on behalf of the whole congregation. And I thought about it for a little bit, and I said, we have a lot of casual friends, and people are incredibly friendly. But I spoke for myself. I said, I'm lonely. I'm not alone. There's a lot of people around. But I said, in the Bethlehem church, we'd been there 12 years We had a couple small group and it became really rich and deep and you could call someone at 3 a.m. and they could confront and they could encourage. And I said, I don't have that yet here. We don't have that here. Would you pray? I'll pray that some names come up that we maybe could form a group like that. He prayed, I prayed, we invited some people. Not everybody could because of issues, but about 15 months ago, a couple's group started. And tonight, Sherry and I will host our couple's small group that meets every two weeks. We eat, and then we study a book, or we study the Bible. And it's that. I want to grow, but, but it's that I know people deeper, and they know me, and that matters. Do you have that in your life? I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons why we should meet together, why community is important. Let me walk through them quickly. 
why we meet together, I'll understand the Bible better. I always, in our couple small group, or when last Wednesday night, Sherry and I were at a Romans study, someone will say something around the table that I would have never thought about. There was an insight that was not given to me, but it was given to someone else, and they shared it, and then it became my insight too. If you're just studying the Bible by yourself, it's limiting how God can speak to you. I'll feel like a real part of a God's family. We never have to be lonely or isolated in the body of Christ. You might be, but you don't have to be ongoing. Prayer will be more meaningful. Have you ever thought that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst? Not just when you're there by yourself praying. I mean, God is there. But he says specifically where two or three or more are gathered. We've got that promise of Jesus. I'll be able to handle stress better. A year ago, the day before, Sherry and I went at 6.30 to a member of this congregation's one-year anniversary from cancer. A young woman in the congregation, she survived cancer, and they were having a party. And when we drove at 6.30 across town uh, to their house, it was just sprinkling. And we left about 9, 9.30, and it was coming down. I mean, it was pouring. And I looked at Sherry, and I said, we've never been through a hurricane. They've talked about weather before. I wonder if we'll have church tomorrow. And it just kept raining and raining and raining, and calls were sent back and forth at 3.34 in the morning, and we're not going to have church. I mean, it's a war zone. And Sherry and I are in our neighborhood for the next eight days. We can't get out. I mean, we could have gotten out, but then we couldn't have stayed in and helped people. And, and so it was eight days later, the next Sunday, when two members from this service picked us up in a canoe and brought us here so we could preach and have a unity service. And I've talked at different times about being Houstonized, and I don't think I've ever experienced anything like this. I mean, I think anywhere people would rally, but I think there's a can-do attitude, there's an entrepreneurial spirit, there's a southern hospitality here that, that made people who didn't know each other reach out to each other. Calls occurred. Doors were knocked on. And people that were on the affected side, 150 to 200 families in our congregation, lost their houses. At first, maybe they didn't want to reach out. We can do this on our own. We're ruggedly individual. We're Texans. We're we're tough. Even the toughest broke down and said, maybe it's okay to call someone and be on the receiving instead of just the giving end of help, that that's a gift to you and to the person who gives you help too. And the church immediately became a shelter and then mucking crews and money started to pour in and we've distributed 900 and some thousand of the million dollars that you gave to help people not get out of all of it but let them know they're not alone. And it, and it hits me a year later and, and it's a sign that I don't like I'm saying that we're, we're returning more to our bunker mentality and our bubbles. And it doesn't need to be the case. I mean, we got to know our neighbors 
because we walked the neighborhood and knocked on doors and Sherry took care of dogs and cats and somebody couldn't get out to get their stitches removed and I said, I'll do it. And they said, isn't your wife a nurse? And I said, yeah, she is. She, she'd be better to do it. And, and that's all those things wouldn't have happened if we weren't out there. Why do we then now turtleize ourselves and get underneath our shell? Um, put the, the why community matters again up. I can do more together in service than on my own. I mean, maybe there's someone in this room that could distribute a million dollars, but not many places could. And just the church in the city, we had 700 people out at the Houston Food Bank and, and here, and next year I think we're going to be over 1,000. That doesn't happen with one family or one person. I talked that I was going to say this week about community, and Kristen Noop, who's head of our young adult ministry, said that before she came here, but it could have happened here, she was part of a small group, newer in the faith, and one of the members, a, a woman named Sarah, had terminal cancer, and she had to go down every week to the medical center for treatments, and someone in the small group had a house down by the medical center, and they said, well, maybe you can borrow our house. And we'll switch to your house. But Sarah's house was too small, but somebody else in the small group said, well, our house is bigger. And one of the two was, um, had time, and she said, what if we switch houses and then I can caregive for Sarah till she gets done with this experience? And Sarah, as a new, and Kristen, as a new Christian, said, as a new Christian, said, I'd never been around people that were thinking that radically generous before in my life. that one offered a house, not forever, but for a time, and another offered their time. And so this person went through cancer treatment not alone. Do not neglect the meeting together, which is the habit of some but provoke one another to love and good deeds and encourage one another and all the more when you see the day approaching. If you don't have that yet in your life and you've been waiting for someone to call you to set it up, fight for this. Maybe you have to call people and set the group up. Maybe you need to look in our Focus magazine and find all the different opportunities Men's life starts September 11th. It's going to start a half an hour later, Tuesday mornings. Big group speaker, small group after that. Doesn't get any better than that, just for the fall. Women's BSD has been renamed Word and Worship. Martha Moore and a team are, are taking what uh, Jody Harrington and Mary Lee Going have been doing and going to try to take it to the next level. It's women, but it's also couples. It could be anyone. They're going to study Genesis. It doesn't get any better than that. Alpha is starting in a couple weeks where if you have questions, it's the great place for that dialogue to occur. New member class, confirmation, AA, Marriage retreat, it's all there. Or if it's not there, fight for it. 
I'm not joking. It's connect or die. Connect or die. Let us help you if you need to. Connect so that you don't die. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for a text like this that challenges us out of our rugged individualism. Where we did great as a church, it was in community. Where we have sins to confess is where we didn't know or we didn't help when we could have. And we learned from Harvey, but will we fall back into old patterns? It is not our abilities that show who we are. It is our choices. Amen.